Okay, well, good evening, everyone. We are going to be talking about the moral life. The PowerPoint that you want to be looking at is a life in Christ. Truth, freedom, conscience, commandments, and the Beatitudes. There is a lot here. Last week, we completed the section of the course on the sacraments. And the sacraments, of course, are the reality of Christ's life with us through every stage and moment of our lives. You know, think about baptism being, you know, when we're babies, the Eucharist when we're seven, confession when we're seven, confirmation in our adolescence, then young adult is the sacrament of marriage or maybe a vocation to religious life or holy orders, and then finally the anointing of the sick. And so the sacraments really are his continued presence among us through the Holy Spirit and his church. Now we're going to discuss how God's grace, his truth, and man's freedom work together to determine a life with God forever or a life apart from him. And so God's grace is is what we already talked about, right? The sacraments. His truth, which we're going to talk about now, that is the commandments, the Beatitudes, and man's freedom, this is our part, work together to determine a life with God forever or a life apart from him. I think before we can really discuss this deeply, we really need to have a deeper understanding of freedom and truth. It is significant that in the gospel, we hear an echo of the struggle in the culture today as Pilate asked Jesus the great question, what is truth? What Pilate missed and many in today's world deny is that truth, the truth of God, ultimately is given. We believe that there is an objective truth and God has given it to us anew in Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is in the following of Christ, who is truth, as the only way to authentic freedom freedom to do the good because that's really what freedom is freedom is the ability to do what is good today's culture tells us that it isn't truth that's the most important thing but the most important thing is freedom for the culture freedom becomes the source of values this is a cause for relativism because relativism believes there is no objective truth and that I'm free to do whatever I want. And I guess that's true. You are free to do whatever you want. But if it's not in the service of the good, ultimately, you're going to become enslaved to that which you choose. And because when I just choose to do what I want, oftentimes that kind of freedom leads to chaos, disorder, sin. It's only when truth is the source of our values that we become authentically free. St. Leo the Great had a great quote that reminds us who we are, that we're made in the image and likeness of God, that baptism restores what's been lost. And so we, we become in communion again with the Father. And so St. Leo the Great says, Christian, recognize your dignity, and now that you share in God's own nature, do not return to your former base condition by sinning. Remember who is your head and of whose body you are now a member. 
Never forget that you've been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of the kingdom of God. St. Leo is, is telling us, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Be who you are. So let's talk a little bit more about this freedom of ours. What is man's freedom? Freedom is the power rooted in reason and the will to act or not to act, to do this or to not do that, and to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. So by free will, one shapes one's own life. Human freedom is a force for growth and maturity in truth and goodness. And it attains, human freedom attains its perfection when directed toward God, who is our beatitude. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the more that one does that is good, the freer one becomes. There is no true and authentic freedom except in the service of what is good and just. The choice to disobey and do evil is an abuse of freedom and leads to the slavery of sin. Freedom makes man responsible for his acts to the extent that they are voluntary. Progress in virtue, knowledge of the good, enhances our mastery over the will and over its actions. Responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance. So if we don't know something is wrong, if we're forced to do something that we know is wrong, but we're really forced, you know, under the power of a knife or a gun or threatening of someone else's life or our goodwill. These things can diminish or nullify our responsibility for an action. Even some psychological or social factors can diminish our responsibility. But every act directly willed is the responsibility of its author. So there's some mitigating factors to whether or not we're responsible for our actions, but if, if our action is directly willed, is freely chosen, then it's our responsibility. Look at Eve in the garden. Look at David. Both of these chose poorly, right? They, they didn't use their freedom well, and they knew they were choosing poorly. They had all the information that they needed, and yet still they chose poorly. Freedom is exercised in relationships between human beings. Animals don't really have freedom. They have instinct. They can be trained. But they don't reason like you and I do. Every human person created in the image of God has the natural right to be recognized as free and responsible, especially in moral and religious matters. Now we know from the story of salvation history that man's freedom is limited. It's fallible. Man failed. He freely sinned. By refusing God's plan of love, he deceived himself and became a slave to sin. This was the first alienation in the garden, the first rejection of God. 
This primordial turning away caused a multitude of other alienations. Remember, we talked about how original sin separates us from God. It separates us from ourselves. It separates us from one another, and it separates us from creation. So in the abuse of freedom from the beginning, there is, born in the human heart, a woundedness, an inclination towards sin. The exercise of freedom does not imply license. We do not have the right to say or do anything we want. Civil authority makes this very clear. It would be wrong to say that a man is an individual who is fully self-sufficient and whose final goal is the satisfaction of his own interest in the enjoyment of earthly goods. No. Freedom is subject to a higher authority, a truth which precedes it, a truth which is in itself given. Man was never given dominion over the truth. He was given dominion over himself to choose good and to avoid evil. This good and evil was already established and it is eventually articulated in the Ten Commandments. It is not up to us then to determine what is good or what is evil. It's our job to choose to do the good and to choose to avoid the evil. By deviating from the moral law, man violates his own freedom, becomes imprisoned within himself, disrupts neighborly fellowship, and rebels against the divine truth. Christ wants to liberate us. He wants to free us. And in him, we have communion with the truth that makes us free. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and where the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom, says St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 17. So freedom and grace, the grace of Christ, it's not a rival to our freedom. Grace strengthens us to do the good, to be the most authentically free that we can be. The more docile we are to the promptings of grace, the more we grow in inner freedom and confidence during trials. Freedom then makes man a moral subject. He acts deliberately. He is the father or mother of his or her acts. So acts freely chosen in the consequence of a judgment of conscience can be morally evaluated. They are either good or evil. So freedom makes man a moral subject. Man acts deliberately. He's the father of his acts. Acts freely chosen in consequence of a judgment of conscience can be morally evaluated. They are either good or they are evil. So how do we determine the morality of moral acts? Well, we have to look at three different sources. We have to look at the act itself. We have to look at the end or the intention. And we have to look at the circumstances. Now the act or the object chosen can be morally neutral or it can be evil or it could be good. If the object or the action is not good, if it's not just morally neutral, then you can't do it, right? 
if it's if act is if the act itself is already evil, you you cannot make it good by intending good. So all three must be good. The act must be good. The intention must be good. And the circumstances must be good. The ends can never justify the means. What do I mean by that? I mean that we can't want to achieve some end, some consequence, and do something evil in order to get it. I left my wife and children because I fell in love with someone else. No, 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 no. Love can never, never break a covenant. Love would never be unfaithful, right? Authentic love would never seek self. It would always seek the beloved. Now, conscience plays a very important role in us, our capacity to choose the good. Conscience is, is really man's most secret core. It's a law inscribed by God on our heart. It really is, is a call to do good and avoid evil. It is a practical judgment. So conscience is the recognition of the moral quality of a concrete act that a person is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already performed it. Man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. And so if we have a well-formed conscience, we must follow our conscience. Conscience is a messenger of him who both in nature and in grace speaks to us behind a veil and teaches and rules us by his representatives. Conscience is man's most innermost sanctuary, the place where he walks with God. But you know, man must be still. He must be quiet in order to hear God's voice. Conscience enables us to take responsibility for our actions, to admit fault and evil, to understand God's mercy and forgiveness. And so our conscience must be well-formed. And we form our conscience well through reason, education, positive influences. Sin dulls our conscience. And so we must guard our senses. One forms their conscience by responding, number one, to that basic moral good that all of us have in our hearts. And this is called synderesis. What is synderesis? S-Y-N-D-E-R-E-S-I-S. Synderesis is that basic moral good that all of us have. It can be dulled. But we all have it, and it's just this basic understanding of what is good and what is evil. To know that killing someone is, is evil. Rape is evil. There's just this natural knowledge that we all have about evil and about good. That's what Cinderesis is. And it's the first step 
in the forming of your conscience. But cinderesis can't be where we stop, right? We, we have to go beyond cinderesis. We have to educate ourselves. And this is where moral science comes in. We must educate in ourselves in, in, as to what God taught. What are the Ten Commandments? What does the church teach in the doctrine of, of the faith, in the catechism? What does the church say about some of the new technologies, some of the surgical interventions or medical interventions that, that we don't completely understand? What does the church say about end of life, euthanasia, abortion? We need to form our conscience by what the Lord has taught us. And so moral science includes medical science, it includes church teaching, it includes our values that we've grown up with, our parental values, our familial values, the values of our community. And when we put all of that together, we have a well-formed conscience. And even if we don't like the answer we come up with based on the formation of our conscience, we must choose it. We must do what our conscience tells us. Even if we don't like what our conscience is telling us. And so if we go through the processes of forming our conscience well, we will choose the good. But we must form our conscience well. So formation of conscience, cinderesis, moral science, recognizing that conscience is not purely subjective. It is objective. And so it gathers all this objective data and it makes a practical judgment based on the education of my conscience, the formation of my conscience. And then I am compelled to choose what my conscience has discovered. What's the natural law? A lot of times we hear about the natural law. And the natural law is a lot like cinderesis. It expresses the original moral sense which enables man to discern by reason the good and the evil, the truth and the lie. It's the light of understanding placed in us by God. We know what we must do and what we must avoid. It's present in the heart of every man and woman. It's established by reason and it expresses the dignity of the person. Because we're rational, we can think. The natural law is immutable. That means it's unchangeable. It's permanent. It's the light of understanding placed in us by God. Through the natural law, we know what we must do and what we must avoid. This light is given to us at creation. The natural law provides the moral foundation for building the human community, and it is the necessary basis for the civil law which, with which it is connected. So many times the civil law is really based on this natural law, the moral sense of the good. So that's the natural law. What is a life in Christ? Well, as children of God, through baptism, we're enabled in grace to live even a higher life than just the life of the natural law. We're called to live the life that Christ calls us to. Even our woundedness, grace accords us this ability. We are response 
ball to move toward him. We are response-able to move toward him, though. In responding to his call, we become partakers in his divine life. We become capable of living out a life of holiness in him. This is only possible through his grace. As Catholics, we have access to this grace in and through the church. We become sons and daughters in the Son. We become, through the Spirit living in us, tabernacles, temples of the Holy Spirit. We become holy, set apart, living in the truth of his love. We are enabled to do the good. How do we become who we are? Well, the Holy Spirit works on us. He's, in a, he's, he's the interior guide who inspires, guides, corrects, and strengthens us. You see, grace changes us. No, it transforms us. We're not just changing the outsides, but we're worked on from within. That's what grace does. And so this catechesis occurs through the Holy Spirit. It occurs through grace. This catechesis or formation occurs through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are given to us by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. They're often called a self-portrait of Jesus Christ. And the Beatitudes show us the way to authentic happiness. It is in this way of life, this Beatitude, that we're able to attain lasting happiness, which is what our hearts long for. We need to know who we are. We need to know that we're in need of forgiveness. We need to understand virtue. We need to move towards goodness and truth. And a great way to be formed is to really know the lives of the saints. The saints are a wonderful way that we can understand how we're called to live, even in really difficult times. The saints show us what it means to love God and neighbor. The saints show us what it means to follow the doctrines, the laws of the church. All of us are called to a vocation to life in the spirit. The image of God is present in every man. Christ reveals the dignity of the human person to us. He shows us what it means to be human. Remember, I told you the four different reasons for the incarnation. This is the last one, that, that Jesus himself shows us what it means to be human. Man is endowed by virtue of his soul and spirit, freedom. Freedom is an outstanding manifestation of the divine image. Man recognizes the voice of God which urges him to do what is good and avoid what is evil. Everyone is obliged to follow this voice of God. This voice is heard in our conscience. The voice of our conscience is fulfilled in the love of God and neighbor. The only concrete way that we're to love God is to love our neighbor. Living a moral life bears dignity 
bears witness to the dignity of the human person. Living a moral life bears witness to the dignity of the human person. Original sin wounded us, but we still desire the good. But we're also subject to error because of sin. But Christ's grace restores us if we cooperate with it. So what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are when, when Jesus professes on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they who mourn, blessed are they who are meek, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. You see, the Beatitudes show the Israelites that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. They're the heart of Jesus' teaching because they take up the promises that were made to the Israelites, to the chosen people in the Old Covenant. And they fulfill the promises by ordering them not only to the Promised Land, but to the Kingdom of Heaven. So if we live the Beatitudes, we're not just going to get an earthly promised land. We're going to get a heavenly promised land. The Beatitudes portray the charity of Christ. They shed light on how we're called to live out our lives as Christians. They give us promises which sustain hope in the midst of tribulations. The Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it. The Beatitudes reveal the goal of human existence, the ultimate end of human acts. God calls us to his own Beatitude. The kingdom of heaven which the Beatitudes call us to is the vision of God. And that's what we hope for, right? That's what we hope for at the moment of our death, the vision of God. The beatitude we're promised confronts us with the decisive moral choices. It invites us to purify our hearts, to seek the love of God, to know the Ten Commandments and follow them to know the Sermon on the Mount, to be disposed to the grace that Christ gives to us in the sacraments. God calls man to beatitude. He calls man to know, to love, to serve him, to become partakers in divine life, to enter into the glory of Christ, the joy of Trinitarian life. So beatitude is the coming of the kingdom of God. It's the vision of God. It's entering into the joy of the Lord, entering into his rest. God put us in the world to know, to love, to serve him, and so to come to paradise. And beatitude makes us partakers in this divine life. Beatitude invites us again to purify our hearts of bad instincts and to seek the love of God. Beatitude confronts us with decisive choices concerning earthly goods. 
They purify our hearts in order to teach us to love God above all things. So some of the Beatitudes that I, I guess I just want to help maybe you to understand a little bit because they are confusing. I mean, when we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit, what do we mean by that? I mean, are the poor in spirit really blessed? Well, what the Lord really means in, in this statement is that blessed are those who don't depend on material goods to give joy. That there's a detachment. And it's, it doesn't say that it's bad to have material things. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That I'm, I have a lot of good things, but if I lose them tomorrow, I haven't lost the most important thing. Blessed are they who mourn. This statement isn't saying that happiness means that you're sad. I mean, that's kind of a contradiction. But what this means is that, you know, my feelings don't define me. So blessed are those who are not addicted to feeling good. That I don't have to feel good to be doing the right thing, right? I mean, if you think about training for a marathon, if you're training well for a marathon, you're going to go through some pain and sacrifice. You're going to eat differently. You're going to practice things really well. And so you recognize there's something more important here than just my feeling good, right? Blessed are they who mourn, who are not attached to their feelings in the sense that feelings become the most important thing. Blessed are the meek. This really reflects that really the wise man is the quiet man. The one who listens first, who doesn't claim to know everything and have all the answers. Blessed are the meek points to the humble, which is what Christ consistently calls us to. Because all of us are the creature. None of us are the creator. None of us are responsible for the gifts that we've been given. And so blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those really who fight for those that aren't treated fairly or justly, that are denied their basic dignities. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what Jesus did. Blessed are those who are merciful. This is the, the one attribute of Jesus and of God, really, that defines him, his mercy. And when we are merciful as God is merciful, oh my goodness, he too will be merciful to us. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. So blessed are they who see the other person as God sees them. So we, we don't assume the worst, we assume the best. We assume that they're the image and likeness of God. That's hard. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now peacemakers aren't peacekeepers. Peacemakers are people who stand for the truth. Peacekeepers compromise the truth. But peacemakers fight for the truth. And then the final beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted for sake of me. 
This is what Jesus was. I mean, he was persecuted for the truth and the love of God. And so the servant, the disciple, is not above the master. We too are called to be blessed. We too are called to be attitude. To be like Christ, a self-portrait which the Beatitudes give us of the person of Christ. So let's look a little bit at the, the old law as in contrast to the new law. Now the old law, we, we want to make clear, has not been forsaken, right? Jesus was clear. I have not come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. The old law is still prevalent because the old law really is founded on the Ten Commandments, and they're the basic rights and wrongs of the moral life. The old law prepares us for the gospel. We've talked about this throughout this whole class, right? The covenants, the whole of the Old Testament is a story of salvation history, which is forming a people for God. We start with Genesis. We go to Noah, right? Prefigures us, prepares us for the church. It prepares us for baptism. Then we go to Abraham, who's the father of faith. It prepares us for the crucifixion of our Lord, the sending of the Son. We go to Moses. We're given the commandments here. And we hear about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We, we get the Eucharist prefigured for us here. And so the old law prepares us for the gospel. It's the first stage of revealed law. And it expresses many truths that are accessible by reason. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They are the natural law articulated in these very clear statements. But they're really an articulation of the natural law. They're written on tablets of stone by God himself. But the new law is written on our hearts by Christ. The old law is holy, it's spiritual, it's good, but it can't save us. Okay, because the old law is really a formation in the outsides. It's basic, right? It's a beginning faith. And it's given to us by God, certainly. But we need his life in order to transform us. And the old law does not yet give that to us. Now, the new law is the law of the gospel. It is a perfection here on earth of the divine law, natural and revealed. The new law works through charity. It uses the Sermon on the Mount to teach us what must be done. And it makes use of the sacraments to give us the grace to do it. So this is what you got to do. And this is how you're going to have the power to do it through the sacraments. The new law practices the acts of religion, which we talked about last week, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. The prayer of the new law is the Our Father. The new law requires us to make a choice between the way of life or the way of death. It commands us to love one another as he has loved us. It is then the law of love 
because it makes us act out of the love infused by the Holy Spirit rather than fear. It's a law of grace by means of faith and the sacraments. It's a law of freedom because it sets us free from the ritual and juridical observances and inclines us to a life of charity. So this new law is a law of love. It's a law of grace and it's a law of freedom. It surpasses and fulfills the old law through the Beatitudes, the commandments, by reforming the heart at the root of human actions. And so I want you to know those three dimensions of the new law. It's a law of grace, it's a law of freedom, and it's a law of love. It's a law of grace by means of the faith and the sacraments. It's a law of freedom because it sets us free from the ritual and juridical observances and inclines us to a life of charity. So the new law is a law of love, grace, and freedom. It surpasses and fulfills the old law through the Beatitudes and the commandments by reforming the heart at the root of human actions. Our next presentation will focus on the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, and then we're going to talk specifically about the seven deadly sins and the seven lively virtues. God bless.